Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Jack Baca, pastor of the Village Church in Rancho Santa Fe, California, and we are studying together this fall through the book of Revelation. This is the fourth week of our study, and we are studying today Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 14. So if you have not yet read those verses, I would encourage you to do that before continuing on with this video, and then have the verses in front of you as we walk through this study. One way to summarize this portion of Revelation is to say that it is the vision of God and Christ in heaven. Remember, John is on the island of Patmos. He is given great inspiration by the Spirit of Jesus, the Messiah, the risen Christ. And this vision that he has takes him into uh, a wonderful world filled with imagery, with song, with allusion to the Old Testament, but all of it meant to serve as a message to first century Christians, especially those who are facing great persecution and pressure because of their faith in Christ. Let's begin our study, and let me say this in a general sort of way about this particular portion of Revelation. This is the beginning of a major new section of Revelation that will take us all the way through chapter 18, verse 24. And all of this larger section is a vision and then description and even proclamation, you might say, about the glory and power of God of God the Creator and God the Redeemer. God, we would say, the Father in some sense, and God the Son. All of this is meant to encourage Christians who are being uh, pressured to uh, say and to believe and to act as if the Roman Caesar is the Lord, or as if all of the other gods of the pantheon uh, in this period in history are the Lord. In this section, we have many different eschatological woes portrayed. This is part of apocalyptic thought, the, the genre and the style that John is writing in. There are many different woes, problems, situations that will befall all the people, but all of that is really a prelude to the victory of God, to the establishment of God's kingdom at the end of all of history. And so in this larger section, we have the portrayal of the judgment of God on an evil world, but also God's victory over the evil that is in the world. John here is seeing a great vision of the fact that Jesus Christ, the victorious Lord and Savior, the Messiah now, stands at the end of history when all things are said and done. At the end of history, there will be Jesus. And that's meant to give us courage to say to us that everything is going to turn out just fine. Christ also stands not only at just the end of history, but Christ stands in the midst of history, if you will. Jesus is not just waiting at the end, and we go through trials and tribulations now and, and sort of make our way through it as best we can, but, but the risen Christ, by the power of the Spirit, is present in real time, in real history with first century Christians and also with you and me. And that means that we can be just fine, not only at the end, but just fine now. 
Now, just fine is an interesting term. It doesn't mean that we escape suffering, tribulation, trial, persecution, whatever it is, but it means that underneath all of that, and more important, more powerful than all of that, is the presence of Jesus with us. And so what we have at the beginning of Revelation, the first three chapters that we've already looked at, the the initial hymn of praise, if you will, to God and Christ, and then the discussion of what's going on in, in the seven churches, which is really meant to be a discussion of what's going on in all the churches, that's sort of as a description of what is happening now in real time as John writes Revelation and as the letter is read to those churches. Beginning with chapter 4 now, we have more conversation and discussion about what is going to happen perhaps in the immediate future for certain in the far-flung future. Now, John does not know when the end will be. Jesus himself said while he was alive and teaching on earth that he did not know when the end will be. And so let's not get all wrapped up in a prediction of the future. This is not a prediction of the future in the way that I can predict, perhaps, that there will be an election on November 3rd or that there will be Christmas on December 25th. The book of Revelation is is a theological expression and proclamation of deep truth that goes beyond our timing. And so for those of you who think that I'm going to give you the secret about what Revelation says about when Jesus is coming back, or perhaps about when the rapture is going to happen, that's not what we're going to talk about, because Revelation simply does not say. That word rapture, For instance, I know that's one of the things that has people so concerned sometimes when they study the book of Revelation. They're worried about when the Spirit of Christ is going to come down and suck all the believers up into heaven and leave all the unbelievers down here. But let me tell you that the word rapture does not occur in the book of Revelation. That's because Revelation is not about specific timing of anything. It was meant to say something to first century Christians, and what is said is eternal and timeless truth. It is absolutely true and certain, but it's not about the timing as much as it is about who is in control of time and where everything eventually will go. So let's start to look at some of the detail that is in these particular chapters. First of all, the first six verses or so of uh, of chapter 4. Essentially, these six verses want to tell us that God is God, that God is God, not Caesar, not some other collection of of minor gods, but only God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God whom Jesus called Father, that God is the one true God. This is sort of the opening scene, if you will, of this long section of Revelation where we have a discussion of the heavenly glory of God and the Lamb of God. Before John begins to describe all the trials and tribulations that will come, both to believers and non-believers alike, John wants to assure us that the loving God who came to die for us is the same God who is in control of all history. In this section, we encounter the word throne. The throne is an important image for the people of God. It's, of course, a very important image for all of the people of the first century world. 
Three out of four times that the word throne occurs in the New Testament, it's in the book of Revelation. The throne is discussed many times in the Old Testament, for instance, in Ezekiel 1, verses 4 through 28. The throne is the place where God is. Now, of course, first century Christians realize that in Rome, the emperor has a throne, and in all of the different cities of the Roman Empire, especially the major cities, you see statues of the, of the Roman Caesar, extensions of his power, places that are meant to emphasize and, and to uh, encourage and support the power of the Roman uh, Empire, if you will. But John sees a bigger throne, a better throne, an eternal throne, the throne where the true God sits, where the the true God resides. John has a vision. We've talked about vision before. John is not actually seeing a big movie screen up in heaven that is playing these things out. No, John is, is taking from his vast knowledge of the Old Testament, from his knowledge of what is going on in the world at the time, and God is giving him an inspiration to speak to us about deep theological truth. John is, as I've said before, not so much telling us about the future, but about who is in control of all things, who is on the throne, in contrast to the one who is on the throne in Rome. John uses terms like, worthy art thou, speaking of God, or speaking of the Lord and God of all things. Those are actually phrases that were used to describe the Roman emperor. And so John uses those terms to describe the one true God in direct contradiction to those who would believe that Caesar is God. John uses lots of different images. And these images are important. They speak about deep theological truth. Because they are images, people have the, run the risk, if you will, of, of interpreting them literally. But we can't interpret them literally. We must interpret them in the light of what they said in the Old Testament. For instance, John talks about lightning and thunder. All throughout the Old Testament, when God appears, sometimes God appears in lightning and thunder, two of the most powerful experiences of the natural world that spoke something about the truth and power of God. John talks about the book the scroll of the law, perhaps. The book is important because books were very valuable, very precious, very expensive possessions in John's day. And when John talks about the book, he talks about the mind and the will and the wisdom and the plan of God, everything that is written in the book. If it's written down, it's permanent, it's real, it's the law. John talks about the seals, some of you may have had uh, something that I had back in college days, sealing wax, uh, essentially a, a candle that you would burn on one end and drop some wax on a letter and then a, a metal thing that, that had maybe your initial in it and you would imprint your seal and seal up a letter with sealing wax. Seals were important in the first century world. Sometimes people wore a ring that had the seal of, of their position or their name or their status, and you would use your ring to imprint on the wax. 
John says God is the one who controls the real seals, the real secrets and mysteries. He talks about the seven spirits of God, meaning the fullness of God's presence and power. He talks about the sea, how God has brought his power over the chaos of the sea, calling to mind the imagery of Genesis. He talks about the rainbow. You know about the rainbow, Noah and the flood and the promise of God's everlasting love for his whole creation. He talks about many different living creatures meant to represent all of created life. These are all images that John uses to describe who God is and what God is doing in the world in the first century as he has been active in the world throughout all the centuries before, especially as known in the revelation of the Old Testament. And so, That's what the first few verses of chapter 4 are about. And then we move into the next few verses. Chapter 4, starting with the latter part of verse 6, going through verse 11. And here, the, the general message is that God is the creator of all things, and God is about the business of redeeming his creation. Here, John speaks about four creatures, the cherubim. We encounter the cherubim in the Old Testament. Cherubim were also popular images in the Mesopotamian culture and Canaanite mythology. The cherubim here are guardians of the throne on which God sits, and they are pictured in four different ways. One is pictured as a human being, a man representing humanity. Another is an eagle, which is the chief of all the birds. Another is an ox, which is the chief of all domestic animals. Another is the lion, the chief of all wild animals. You see, all of God's living creatures are surrounded, uh, are, are surrounding him uh, at the throne as a way of saying they are subservient to and created by God, and they serve God's purposes. And then there's a song. Now, if you've ever studied ancient Greek drama you in theater, you, you realize that when there's a song that's sung, the song is going to sort of give you clues to what the whole drama is about. Here we have a song, just like an ancient Greek theater. It's a hymn to God the Creator who intended to create the creation and who intends to redeem the creation. You see, God loves his creation, the physical world, Christian faith is not just about your spirit or your soul. Christian faith is about everything that God created, including this world that God loves. Then we go on, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Here the general message is that there is someone who knows what the future is and controls what the future is. Here we see a closed scroll. I hope all of you have seen images of scrolls. Remember that there were not bound books as we understand them today. A scroll would be a a long sheet of papyrus or animal skin. It would be written on. It would be rolled up. Scrolls were important, of course, in the Hebrew uh, history. Uh, It was on scrolls that, that the scriptures were written. But there's a big problem with this particular scroll. It's closed You can't open it. You can't read what it says. Therefore, you do not know what the future is. Who can come and open the scroll? That's the question. Who can reveal the future to us? John then begins to speak of the great lion of God. 
The great lion of God is, is discussed all throughout the Old Testament, especially by folks like Isaiah and Ezekiel. The great lion of God in the Old Testament times and for the Jews of, of John's day would be the new Messiah, the one who comes as the most powerful of all creatures in order to institute God's reign and God's kingdom on earth again. The lion of God is the one who will protect all the helpless, all the powerless, all the Christians of the first century, perhaps, who really have no political or military or economic or social power, no power of any kind, to, to stand up against the persecution they are, are facing. Now, John sees the great lion who will be the great warrior for these people, and yet there's a twist. This lion is also the lamb of God, the Agnus Dei. The lion and the lamb are one and the same in the vision that John sees. The lamb is the lion. The lion is the lamb. What does that actually mean? What John means to say is that God's great victorious Messiah has already come to earth. That Messiah has functioned as the Lamb, the weakest, the most meek and mild and gentle of all the animals. That word for lamb actually is not so much about the lamb, but, but it means the powerless. This lamb, though, that John sees has seven horns, which means it's extremely powerful. It has seven eyes, which means it's extremely wise. The lamb is the one who conquers, who overcomes, who prevails, who wins. This lamb is the lion. Now, is the lion. Now, how does the lamb conquer? This is an extremely important uh, visual image of very, very deep Christian understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus was doing and how he did it. Unlike a lion who comes in destroying, killing, maiming, imposing his power from above, the lamb comes in, the lamb of God. And the Lamb of God expresses his power, his redemption, by dying for us. Jesus died on the cross as a powerless victim of Roman might. But by that dying and then being raised again, the Lamb is resurrected, the Lamb is restored the lamb becomes the lion in some sense. This is an amazing expression of the way God works in the world. God works quietly. God works gently. God works through love. This lion who is the lamb, the lamb who is the lion, is the one who opens the scroll. The one who has the key to the knowledge of all things, past, present, and future. The one who controls, therefore, past, present, and future. And then we have in the last verses of chapter 5, verses 8 through 14, a hymn of praise, if you will. A praise to the Lamb who is the Lion, the Messiah of God. Praise for God's universal victory. Christ reigns forever and ever. 
Everything in all of God's creation will celebrate the victory of God. God controls the past. God controls the present. God controls the future. Everything else that we read in Revelation, in some sense, must be understood in the light of that fundamental affirmation, that, that proclamation, the declaration that in the dying Savior, the one who gave his life for us, God was doing his ultimate thing to redeem all of creation, not to force the creation to God's own way, but to call the creation to redeem the creation, to love the creation with sacrificial love. And that's the way God works. God works by offering himself in sacrifice for us, and that's the way he calls us to work. Not imposing our will and power, but in calling all people into the family of the loving God. These are vital things to remember as we move further in the story of Revelation, further in the story of how we withstand the trial and tribulation of this life. I hope you're encouraged by this message. I hope you're inspired by this message. Remember, God is at the end of all things. God is in all things now in the power of the risen Savior. Live your life today in that knowledge, with that conviction, and you'll be just fine. Look forward to seeing you the next time. Amen.